John chapter 19 this morning. In our study through John's gospel account, we arrive today at the apex of all human events in history, Jesus dying for sinners. The most famous death of all time. Over the last seven weeks, we have considered how Jesus bore His cross and how we need to do the same in our Christian life if we are to identify as followers of Christ. We considered Jesus' warning to the women that were following after Him, lamenting and wailing. And He turned to them and said, Weep not for Me, but weep for yourselves. We considered the physical agonies that Jesus would have endured going through the crucifixion itself. And let's not forget, on top of all of that, He's bearing the sin of all the world. We considered how the saying above Jesus' head that was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew spoke to all of mankind that it speaks to the religious man, the philosophical man, and the legal man, and that we all can find our answers in Christ. We studied the seamless coat that they did not rent, and it pictures Christ's eternal priesthood and His eternal kingdom, which will never come to an end. It pictures Jesus being the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is both our king and our priest. Two weeks ago, we considered the two malefactors who were crucified alongside of Christ, One on each side. One man was more concerned about his physical condition, and the other man was more concerned about his spiritual condition. Amen. And he turned and he said, Lord, remember me when thou enterest thy kingdom. And Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And then we, last week, were considering the folks that are standing by the cross, these four women and the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the penman of this count, is that disciple. Some are going to walk closer to the Lord than others. And we saw that last week with John and these women. And some will serve God in ways others won't. Because those that are closest to Calvary, God reaches for first. Amen. There's a lot we covered last week. If you missed it, go back and listen. But we arrive today to where Jesus lays down His life. Let's begin in John chapter 19 by reading verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. John here, he moves very quickly to Jesus' death while the other gospel accounts give us some very significant details that take place while these verses are happening. And I want to look at that today. If you'll go to Matthew chapter 27, we'll come back to John 19 before we close. But let's consider what is taking place here in Matthew 27. We'll read verses 45 through 54. Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. 
The earth did quake and the rocks rent. The graves were opened. Many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. In verse 45, we find that the light of the world is on the cross, but the land has gone dark. Darkness falls upon all the land during what would have been the brightest time of the day. It is the sixth hour to the ninth hour. This would be for us noon till three o'clock in the afternoon. What is causing this darkness? We know it's not a cosmic incident. It's not some sort of coincidence in the heavens because eclipses don't last three hours. The eclipse which took place in our area recently, a few years ago, from start to finish was only an hour and a half, and the total eclipse, depending on where you're at, was only about two and a half minutes. And so for the land to go dark for three hours, something else is going on here. What we have recorded for us is not an eclipse. It didn't slowly build up to darkness and then slowly come back to light. But this was darkness over all the land for three hours. So what is causing this darkness? Well, it's because the light of the world is now bearing the sin of the world upon Himself. And only God knows what was taking place in the secret places of darkness this time. But thank God it was taking place. Our solar sun is a picture of God. The sun is so bright and is so glorious that we can't look upon it and stare upon it. Right? But it is the sun that makes life possible upon the earth. And we are warmed by the presence of the sun. We need the shining of the sun if we're going to sustain life upon this earth. The Bible says in Psalm 4, 6, Lord, lift thou up thy light. Lift up thy light of thy countenance upon us. But when God the Son was bearing the sin of the world upon Himself, there was no light to be found from the countenance of God the Father. And for three hours, Jesus endures this darkness of having His Father turn from Him. And in verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is no answer from heaven. People say, well, I shouldn't ask God why. Why not? Jesus did. You may or may not get an answer. How can it be? How can it be that Jesus is being forsaken by God? This fellowship that has been enjoyed since before the world was is now being severed. How can this be? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And if you'll just let this sink in and think about the weight of this. Jesus, the Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who is the brightness of God's glory and the image of his, the express image of His person is now impaled to a cross in total darkness. And God is treating Him as a wicked sinner. Why? He became sin for us. Our sinfulness is being placed upon Jesus Christ. And it was God the Father who made this so. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. 
You understand the sin of the world. Sin's past, sin's present, sin's... They're being placed upon Jesus at this point. The end of Isaiah 53, 6 says, And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All of our idolatries. All of our blasphemies. All of our forsaking of the day of rest. All of our dishonoring of our parents. All of our murdering. All of our adulteries. All of our thefts. All of our lying. And all of our covetousness. Jesus bore it all. All of our cussing. All of our bad jokes. All of the sinful places we have chosen to go. All of the sinful things we have chosen to watch. All the pornography. All the sinful things we have chosen to listen to. All the abuse of our bodies. All the alcohol abuse and the drug abuse and the gluttony that we partake in. Jesus bore it all. All of our unrighteousness, all of our fornication, all of our wickedness, all of our maliciousness, all of our envy, all of our deceit, all of our gossiping, all of our boasting and pride, all of our disobedience, all of our reviling, all of our sexual impurities, all of our hatred, all of our wrath, all of our sins, Jesus bore it all. Don't ever fall for the lie that you aren't that bad of a person. You are. I know that's why we don't have doctors and lawyers running around here. (laughs) That probably sounds bad to anybody that's a doctor or a lawyer. You understand what I mean. Nobody likes to hear that kind of stuff. But don't fall for the lie that you aren't that bad. Don't ever believe that humanity is somehow inherently good. And above all else, don't try to lie to God and convince Him that you're good. If this is how God dealt with sin... How bad must we be? If God said the way of redemption is going to have to be through my son being forsaken upon the cross, sin must be way worse than we pretend that it is. We must not be thinking right about sin. And this is where repentance comes in. Repentance literally means to think differently, to change one's mind. Metanoia. To think differently about what? Think differently about how terrible your sin is in the sight of God. Think differently about who God is and who Christ is, knowing that your sin against a holy God is worthy of punishment. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. You may think you're pretty good, but you need to think differently. Because apart from God, we are all rebellious to the core. We are all as an unclean thing. We are all like sheep who have gone astray. And every one of us has turned to his own way. And when God came to this earth in the flesh, he was despised and rejected of men. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. How? How can this be? Because Romans 5.8 tells us, God commendeth His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man of sorrows, what a name. 
for the Son of God who came. This, this Son of God was known as a man of sorrows. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He who knew no sin became sin for me. So that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, we have no righteousness in of ourselves. We had nothing to offer for God, and we still have nothing to offer. God loved us so much that He placed our sin upon Jesus. And just like the Old Testament picture of the scapegoat, one would go free, and the other would die. And our sins were imputed upon Christ so that you and I might go free. And for me to go free, all I had to do was place my faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Now understand this. Jesus was forsaken by God so that you would never have to be. That's a huge amen statement. And as these three hours of darkness began to give way to light again, the way of salvation was being made known unto whosoever will. Psalm 67, 1 and 2 says, God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause His face to shine upon us that Thy way may be known upon the earth, Thy saving health among all nations. Psalm 83 says, Turn us again, O God, and cause Thy face to shine and we shall be saved. As God was turning the light back on over all the land, God was making His way known upon this earth. And God once again caused His face to shine upon the way of salvation. And you say this morning, how can I be saved? By seeing Jesus as the one who took your filthy sins out of love. See Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the sufferings of death. See Jesus who was forsaken by God for you. See Him dying for you personally. Take Isaiah 53 and where it says are, insert your name. But He was wounded for my transgressions. We couldn't save ourselves. Our blood would never be good enough. But there was one. It was the precious, sinless, spotless, holy Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Now let's keep following this in verse 47. After Jesus cries, Eli, Eli, some are supposing He's calling for Elias, which means Elijah the prophet. Well, the Romans would have had no knowledge of this kind of thing, but the religious Jews did. They knew Malachi 4, 5, and 6, which are the last words recorded by God before He went silent 400 years between the Old and the New Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The religious Jews understood the Scriptures enough to know some things, but they were blinded by their hard hearts. They had been looking for Elijah because of the prophecy of Malachi. 
In Luke chapter 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to Zacharias, who would be the father of John the Baptist. And he said, Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And then in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And when John the Baptist showed up preaching and baptizing the river Jordan, a group of priests and Levites, they came from Jerusalem, and they asked him, Art thou Elias? John the Baptist replied, I'm not. You see, they were looking for the literal, physical appearing of Elijah, not a spiritual one. Jesus asked His disciples one day, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. See, they knew enough to look for Elias, but they didn't have spiritual eyes to see what had already taken place. According to Jesus, Elias had already come. The Bible says in Matthew 17, 10 through 13, And His disciples asked Him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elias is come already. And they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist wasn't lying when he told them, I'm not Elias, because they were looking for the physical appearing of Elijah. But John the Baptist had already come in the spirit and power of Elias. And I just do this short Bible study to highlight why do they say this? Why do they suggest that he's calling for Elias? Well, because they knew Malachi 4 or 5, how Elijah would come before the Messiah. But they're not seeing with spiritual eyes. They're not understanding that it was already fulfilled in John the Baptist, as Jesus proves is the case. And in verse 49, you'll see that they mock Jesus by saying, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. If this man on the cross is in fact the Christ who he claims to be, let's just see if Elijah comes first. We know he's got to come first. And he better hurry up because Jesus is about to die. And so they mock him. Go back to John chapter 19 now. I'll once again read the same verses. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. So the land went dark for three hours as Jesus bore our sins. Jesus was being forsaken by God. Lamentations 1.12 says, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of His fierce anger. Is it nothing to you, all you that pass by today? Is it nothing to you that He suffered on a cross? Is it nothing to you that God afflicted Him out of His fierce anger? And now Jesus, knowing this is about to draw to an end, He says, I thirst. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen says, My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Psalm 69, 21 says, In my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. 
And that's what we see taking place in verse 29. There was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now there's a whole lot of symbolism there we're not going to get into with the hyssop. You'll find it all the way back with the Passover lamb, but uh, I'm going to leave that for you to study so that we can move on. But there's a lot there that we could get into. What interests me here is that Jesus said, I thirst. You see, Jesus was forsaken so you would never have to be, and He thirsted so you would never have to thirst. He endured this thirst for us. He didn't have to go through. He said, I could call 12 legions of angels. You see, Jesus gives us living water. Jesus said to the woman at the well, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus said in John 7, 37, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Revelation 21, 6, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Are you thirsty this morning? Are you finding that things of this life just won't quench your thirst? Do you thirst for righteousness? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Revelation twenty two seventeen 17, it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. It doesn't cost you a thing. You know, they're selling water today in bottles. Isn't that crazy to some of you old-timers? Jesus says, the water that I offer you, it's free. All my life long I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Hallelujah, I have found Him, whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my longings. Through His blood I now am saved. Well of water ever springing, bread of life so rich and free, untold wealth that never faileth my Redeemer is to me. You never have to be forsaken or thirst ever again because Jesus took your place. He satisfies all your longings and through His blood you can be saved. And now for His death. Verse 30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. In John 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus lived a sinless life, but He came to give His life a ransom for many. He's the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He was not murdered, but He willingly gave His life for sinners. And for me personally, I, I get stirred when I think about those words, it is finished. I think that ought to stir our spirits a little bit. You see, there remaineth no more offering for sin. there's nothing more that needs to be done. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away from it. And you've got to get this idea that, well, I just got to be just a little bit better. No. There's nothing you can do. Well, I wish I was better and then I would forget it. 
As for me and my flesh, there dwelleth no good thing. It's done. Hebrews 10, 9-12, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 10.14, For by one offering He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 9.12, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by His own blood He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Hebrews 9.26, For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath He prepared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ was once uh, offer to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 12, 12 tells us to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It is finished. I don't have to wonder about my salvation. I don't have to wonder if I'm saved. I don't have to go to bed and hope that I wake up saved. Amen. It is finished. I don't have to keep living in my past failures. I don't have to keep thinking, man, but I did this and I did. It is finished. It's been forgiven. Get over it. Move on. It's under the blood. Hallelujah. I don't need an earthly priest to intercede on my behalf. I have an eternal great high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for me because he already entered into the holy place once with his precious blood. And that's why Matthew records for us after Jesus cried out, It is finished. It was finished. The veil of the temple rent in twain from top to bottom. God signifying He had accepted the offering of Jesus Christ and the way into the holiest was made available to whosoever will. And now all of God's children have access to God because it is finished. I don't have the salvation. I don't have the sentence of God's wrath abiding on me. It's finished. I have victory in Christ because it is finished and I will live with my Lord for all eternity because it is finished. It's not in jeopardy. It's finished. It's a finished salvation. My sins and iniquities will He remember no more because it is finished. Sin entered the world when mankind rebelled against God and took from the tree. And sin was defeated when Christ died upon a tree. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace when fears are stilled and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, The wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. No guilt in life. No guilt in life. 
no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from His hand till He returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. I'll save the third verse for next week of that song. But it's a great song. The death of Christ ends all death for those who place their faith in Christ. There is a part of me that will never die. Can you say that this morning? Do you know Christ as your Savior? Do you see Him on the cross bleeding for you? The land going dark because your sins are being laid upon Him so that you might go free? Let's pray.